It's hard to believe that here we are at the conclusion of my first sermon series here. We finish 1 John today. And while 1 John has always been a, a precious book to me, when you stop and you slow down and you really consider its message, even though this letter was penned over 2,000 years ago, it's amazing its relevance for today. And so as we conclude in the last part, chapter 5, verses 13 through 21, John does something in this passage that's helpful for us. As a matter of fact, John preaches the sermon for us this morning because he uses the verb, we know, we know, we know, we know, to talk to us about things of which we may be certain. Now the truth is there are a lot of things in life about which we really do not have a clue. There are things that are imponderable. Things like when you send something by truck, it's called a shipment. But when you send it by a boat, it's called cargo. Why do we do that? Some of you will figure that out later. If you squeeze olives to get olive oil, how in the world do we get baby oil? Why don't you ever see the headline, Psychic Wins the Lottery? What happens if you get scared half to death twice? Why in the world is there an expiration date on sour cream? Thought that was the point. And certainly as we head into a political season and want to talk about things that we don't know, if ignorance is bliss, why aren't more people happy? (laughs) And last but certainly not least, if con is the opposite of pro, does that mean Congress is the opposite of progress? (laughs) I've gone to Madeline. (laughs) Listen, it's, it's waiter season. It's waiter season. You have to put your waiters on and you have to wade through a lot of muck during the political season. Can we really, truly know what someone will or won't do in office? To some degree, yes. But to a lot of degree, no. Empty promises, things that we just aren't going to know. And while we can debate what we may or may not know about the imponderables of life, Why, indeed, is there an expiration date on sour cream? John concludes his letter with no uncertainty. He says, there are things about which we can be certain. And that's a good thing. And so John begins uh, concluding his letter by making an audacious, a crazy claim in verse 13. He says that we can know that we have eternal life, that we can know Look at verse 13. John says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might have an idea, have an inkling, guess, wish for the best. No, that you may know that you have eternal life. And while this verse is perhaps only nine verses from the end of the book, John makes it very clear in this verse that this is his entire purpose for writing the book of 1 John. John likes 
purpose statements. If you look at John's gospel, chapter 20, verse 31, he does basically the same thing. I love it. Here's what he says. These things, the gospel, has been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John makes it very clear that he's written his gospel so that people can know who Jesus was. The purpose of John's gospel was to write to unbelievers that they might know who Jesus is. Well, in 1 John 5.13, he includes a similar purpose statement. 1 John was not written to unbelievers. The gospel of John was. So John has written to first century believers, not so that they can know about Jesus, but that by believing they might know that they indeed have the eternal life that he's talking about. That's a great thing. His gospel, clearly written for unbelievers, says this is who Jesus is. His letter, clearly written for believers, is to give us evidence and encouragement and proof that what he, that Jesus preached about, about eternal life, is a reality for us. Now, I, I have no doubt that in this room, if you're a member here, you are a Baptist, whether you claim it or not, you're a member of a Baptist church. But I, I don't have any misgivings that we probably have 20, maybe 30 different denominations represented here in this room. You maybe have not been a Baptist all of your life. And this whole idea of knowing with certainty that we have eternal life is a debated topic among some denominations. No one doubts that eternal life is available. What we doubt about, what, we, what other denominations doubt, is whether we can know with certainty whether eternal life is real, whether we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt whether we are saved. Now, the problem for denominations that say, you know, you're just not going to know until you stand before God. You're just never going to know in this life. They, they have a problem with what John says very clearly here in verse 13. He says, you may know, not guess. And so, friends, one of the things that I would say from this, this single verse is that God is not some fickle God who wants you to guess about your eternal destiny. God wants you to know. He doesn't want you to struggle with assurance. He doesn't want you to wonder whether you've been good enough. It's not an issue of whether you've been good enough. He wants you to know. And that's why he's written this book. We don't doubt the availability. We might doubt the certainty. But John speaks with clarity. We have to see exactly what he says because he says that the promise of eternal life is certainly a promise that God has made, but it's a promise that has a prerequisite. He doesn't say that eternal life is offered to everyone. He doesn't say eternal life is a reality for everyone. He says eternal life is a reality for who? These things I have written to you who believe. So the basis of our assurance is believing God's testimony about who his son was. People who believe in Jesus can have assurance. And I I would say this. There is nothing worse 
than dressing up to go to church and going through all the religious rituals and walking out of here and wondering if things are right with you and God. John would say very clearly, that's a problem. Your Christian growth will be limited if you don't know these things that God has provided for you to know. So friends, if the assurance of of salvation is an issue for you, don't keep that to yourself. Uh, We've got these little handy-dandy things that you can fill out on your bulletin. Uh, That's a precious conversation for, for me or for our staff to have with you that you can know you don't have to struggle with doubt. And if you are doing the prerequisite, you are believing... The thing that's difficult about assurance is it doesn't just happen automatically. There are people who genuinely believe, who struggle because perhaps um, they don't feel it. They don't sense it. And so John writes this and encourages Christians to encourage one another to know what God says they can know. There is a power, there is a comfort, there is a joy, there is a fulfillment that comes by knowing that things are right with us and God. Now, he says you have to believe in the name of the Son of God. You can almost put quotations around that. What does it mean to believe in the name of the Son of God? Does that mean that we believe that Jesus' last name is Christ? Is that what it means to believe in the name of the Son of God? Well, clearly, all throughout 1 John, John has done a um, crystal clear job of sprinkling all throughout his book things about Jesus that we need to believe. He would say, we need to believe that Jesus is God. Not merely a man, but a man who was God. He was both God and man. We take that by faith. He said that we believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. That Jesus was a sacrifice, a substitution for us by dying. And the only basis by which Jesus could substitute was the fact that he lived a sinless life. That's a crazy claim to say that there was a man who lived, died as a sacrifice for us, and lived a sinless life. We believe that Jesus died a death on our behalf, but that he didn't stay dead. He was resurrected bodily, and that he has ascended to God, and that he's coming back for us. These are the things that John is inferring when he says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, a.k.a that he's God, that he's man, that he lives sinlessly, that he died an atoning death, that he was resurrected, that he reigns in heaven with God. Those are the things that he's communicating. So eternal life is a real possibility, and God wants you to know whether you have it or not. Why would you sit in the back of a church week after week and wonder when the Bible says that confidence is available? God doesn't want you to struggle. So how do we know? This first verse that we've looked at. How do we know that we have eternal life? John provides three concrete examples, three specific ways by which we may know. And one of the ways that we may know that we have eternal life is through uh, experiencing answers to prayer. Experiencing answered prayer. Look at verse 14 and 15. He starts off, this is the confidence. People who have assurance are confident believers. This is the confidence which we have before him, before God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. He talks about confidence, boldness. He's saying that we as Christians who know that we have eternal life have free access to God and freedom of speech before God. Now, I don't know if you are, how familiar you are with your Old Testament stories. But you think about Queen Esther, or you think about Nehemiah, who both were dealing with problems kind of in their context. They, they were sad because of things that they were hearing. For Nehemiah, it was specifically the destruction, the ruin of Jerusalem. For uh, Queen Esther, it was um, a protagonist's desire to kill all the Jews. And there's an imperative for both of these individuals to go before the king, to ask the king, hey, king, we need some help. Now, the problem is you can't just go before a human king with no warrant. It's a life or death situation. You, you ever see the knock and then enter? It's not even that. It's, it's you wait till the king says you can come and then you can come. So Queen Vashti, when she goes to approach the king about this plot against the Jews, she says, listen, I may go and I may die, but I'm going to go do it. Isn't it a great thing that God as our Heavenly Father is not like a tyrannical human ruler that says, no, 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 don't you bother my comfort, my seclusion. We have confidence to come before Him in freedom to speak our hearts to Him. And our confidence... In prayer, is not that God is like some giant genie in a, in a lamp that we rub anytime we want something. Hey, God, you know, uh, got a test today and I didn't study, so uh, please help me on the test. You know how God helps you on the test, kids? He gives you a brain so that you can study in advance. And listen, <laughs> I think it's a sin to not study and then expect God to bail you out. But listen, kids, here's the great thing. Teenagers... You're not the only one that does this. Mom and dad do this too. They don't invest in their marriage. And then their marriage falls apart and they go, God, save my marriage. They don't don't take good care of their finances. Oh, God, dig me out of this hole. God gives us a brain so that we can live in obedience to him and experience his blessings by doing things right the way that he wants to. And so our confidence is not that we we get to manipulate God and bend God to our will. Because there's a specific condition set upon the prayer. It's not that he hears whatever we ask. It's that we are praying, asking according to his will. And it says when we ask something that God wants to give us, we're realizing that prayer is not a device to impose our will upon God, but every prayer that a Christian prays is some variation of God, your will, be done in my life, in my marriage, in my finances, in my school. Every prayer we pray, if it is a Christian prayer, is not, God, fix this. It's, Lord, help me to submit to your will as king and learn how to live under your rule. By prayer, we seek and embrace and align ourselves with God's will. And the problem is, if we define prayer that way, then most of us aren't interested in it anymore. We, we, we would much prefer a God who is a genie. Not a God who says, listen, you line up with me through prayer. We would rather God line up with us. 
The problem is, if God lines up with our will, guess who's God? Not him. We've made ourselves God. I love what it says. It says we can have the confidence not only that we can come before him, but in verse 15, it says if we know if he hears us, then we know that we have it. And what he's communicating there is it's not like God is sitting up there kind of wondering, uh, well, I wonder what so-and-so needs. And then, you know, the prayer kind of travels light years to get to God. And then God has a little committee meeting and says, you know, David Mills asked for this. What are we going to do, friends? And then they, you know, take the minutes and they, they, they make a proposal and they say, all right, we're going to do this for David. Um, who's going to take it to him? It's not that there's a process whereby which we have to wait for our prayers to get to God for him to deliberate on what he's going to do and then to ship it to us. When we pray according to his will, guess what? We already know that that's a, that is a prayer God delights to answer. If when we're sick, we're not praying for our healing as much as our sanctification. The minute those words come off your lips you have the thing for which you've asked. It takes a big Christian to not pray carnally. And when we pray according to his will, the moment it comes off your tongue, you have the things that you've asked from God. There's no delay. There's no shipping charge. There's no PayPal account that you have to enter your security code on the back of your credit card. It happens quick it happens immediate when we pray according to his will. <clears throat> now here's one of the things that he does specifically in talking about prayer is he gives us a concrete example of what prayer according to his will is. And he goes into verse 16 and 17 by giving us a specific example of prayer. He says this, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God and God will for him Give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. He goes on. Now, there's a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. Now, this is a contentious issue. John is saying, here's example A for prayer according to his will. And it's not, God, fix the radiator in my car, help my broken toe, put money in my account. It's not a self-centered prayer. When John gives an example of prayer according to God's will, as a matter of fact, it's not a prayer for anything about you. Who's it a prayer for? Someone else. There's a word we use for that. It's intercession. We, we learn how to pray deeply and specifically and about serious issues. I've been warned that uh, I, I will really know that I'm a north sider whenever I have my gallbladder removed. <laughs> the most important thing to pray about is not the organs in my body. It's who is the Lord of my life and how am I responding to that? And it says here specifically that we, are, we see a brother committing a sin not leading to death. Now, what is a sin leading to death? It's not drug abuse or drunk driving. It, 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 we'll, we'll get into that here a little bit more. But it's saying it's a sin that does not have as its natural consequence death. Spiritual death, physical death, we'll define that here. <laughs> what it says is you don't put a Facebook quote up 
about the guy you saw last night who's a member at your church that you saw doing something and you just don't use his name. It doesn't say that you go and you speak to people about it, you gossip about it. This is what do you do? You pray to God to give this person life. When a Christian starts committing sin, they begin the process of dying spiritually. They have said, God has given me this, but I've decided to get this. That's a deathful proposition. And what we have to pray is that our passions and our desires line up with what God wants. And so when you see a brother or a sister veering off the path, instead of getting on the gossip chain, it says you pray to God to give this person life, that they start to see the abundance of what God gives them and they make a course correction back to what God wants. That is true prayer. It is interceding specifically for our brothers and sisters in Christ to live as God intended for them to live, to choose God, to not choose sin. Then he goes on and he makes the waters a little bit more muddy because just as he has given us instruction on who to pray for, John also says there's somebody that we shouldn't pray for. Now, who in the world should we not pray for? He says this at the last half of verse 16. He says, there is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. Now, John is not prohibiting prayer. He's not saying, I command you, you shall therefore not now pray for this person. He's just saying, listen, I'm not recommending that this is happening. There are all kinds of biblical and theological issues here that we're not going to get into in in detail. But I will say this. The Bible is crystal clear that a Christian who sins may forfeit his physical life. Remember in Acts chapter 5, the church was growing like wildfire. As a matter of fact, they went from a small church of about 120 people to 3,120 people overnight. How in the world would a church of 120 people care for 3,000 people? If God added 3,000 people to Northside, we'd be in trouble. And these are not people who live here. They're visiting temporarily on a religious holiday. They have no jobs, no source of income. We have to provide meals every day for 3,000 people. That would tax our giving just a little bit. So what the Christians in Jerusalem did is they started selling off their property, getting rid of everything giving it to the church so that the church could care for the people in their, in their new faith community. And Ananias and Sapphira wanted to get full credit for how much they sold their property for. But they kept, so let's say they sold their property for $100,000, but told everyone they sold it for eighty. Why would you do that? Pocket a quick $20,000 and make it sound like you gave everything to the Lord. Man, I'm pious. I sold my house and I gave it all to the Lord. Give it all to Jesus. No, you didn't. And now you're lying not just to your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're lying to God. It says, when they brought their offering, wouldn't this be a fearful thing? And they said, $80,000, all of it, boom, right there in the plate. Fell over dead. Because they had made a mockery of their followership of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that there were some people who made a mockery of the Lord's Supper, that they didn't examine their lives. They didn't, they didn't examine whether their profession matched their possession. Were they living what they said they believed? And he said, there are some among you who sleep because of taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. 
Now, that didn't mean Paul preached a really long sermon. Folks were snoozing in the church. He's using sleep as a metaphor for death. People didn't take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. And God said, I'm sorry, but you owe me your life now. What would happen to church attendance if um, somebody fell over today when we took an offering? What would happen to church attendance if someone fell over dead in the middle of the Lord's Supper meeting? The Bible says an awe fell over all the people. And they were fearful. But they feared God. They didn't fear magic. They reverenced God. So it's certainly true that sin can cause the forfeiture of physical life. The problem with assuming that in this verse is that everywhere through 1 John, when he talks about life, he's talking about eternal life. He's talking about spiritual life. And so he's saying when we see a brother sinning, we should pray for him, to God, for God to give him life so that he will repent and get back on the right pathway. But he says there is a sin leading to death, to spiritual death. This raises all kinds of questions. Is this the unpardonable sin? Is this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And just real quickly, I'll tell you what I think it is. Because this was a problem in John's day. There were people who attached themselves to the religious community. They went to church. They, they, they dressed up. They wore a choir robe. They, they put a tie on. You know, they stood up when you were supposed to stand up. They sang when they're supposed to sing. They sat down when they're supposed to sit down. They opened their Bible when you're supposed to open your Bible. They said Christian kind of things when you're supposed to say Christian kind of things. They did all of this external outward stuff to look like a Christian. But you know what they didn't do? They didn't trust the gospel. See, that's the thing that's so deadly about church is it's very easy to do all of the externals and be like Jesus called a whitewashed tomb. You look good on the outside, but inside there's spiritual death. You dress everything up on the outside. And I think that's what this is talking about. They're saying, listen, there's nothing we can do for a person who does not have spiritual life. They're, they're dead already. And he's issuing a warning to the church. Listen, a true believer in the gospel and in our Lord Jesus Christ can never fall away from the faith. We have to be clear about that. The Bible is not in any way unclear about that. We are saved, not because we're good enough, but because God is good enough. And God doesn't play around with salvation. When he gives it to us, he doesn't go, uh, 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 uh. No, he gives it to us. We have it forever. God keeps us. But a pretender, someone who doesn't have it, they can apostatize because they don't have the real thing. They can look like a Christian, talk like a Christian, walk like a Christian, and not be a believer. John says, we need to be specific in our prayers. An additional way that John says that we can know that we have eternal life is by experiencing victory over sin. He kind of concludes this section talking about prayer. Uh, In verse 17, he says, all unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not leading to death. And then look what he says in verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. He says quite simply, we don't sin because we're born of God and kept by the one who's begotten of God. Now, when he says that we don't sin, he's not saying that Christians, uh, again, to repeat this, he's not saying that Christians never, ever, ever commit an isolated incident of sin. 
He's saying that's not the testimony of our life. We're not practicing sin to get more proficient. We're not, we're not saying, hey, sin is a good thing. Let's, let's get together and have a Bible study on how we might sin more effectively. We don't do that. We actually get together for Bible study and worship so that we might learn how to live more righteously. We are trying, as weak as we may, to practice righteousness. We're not trying to practice sin. That's what he's saying. He's saying this is a, our, our continual ambition, energy, and motion is towards righteousness, not towards sin. But I love what he says here. He says, we, we don't sin because we're born of God. And then they put a but, but he who was born of God, referring to Jesus, who, he who was begotten of God, keeps him. Now in just a few minutes, if you look down at verse 21, John concludes his whole book by this little phrase, little children, Keep yourselves from idols. Watch out for idols. Verse 18, the one who's begotten of God keeps him, keeps the Christian. Why does Jesus keep us, preserve us, protect us, keep us from Satan? So that we can be involved in keeping ourselves. We're kept by Jesus in verse 18. That doesn't mean that we don't have a job to do when it comes to pursuing God in our righteousness. John says, listen, it's a both and. Jesus keeps you that you might keep yourself. It's a partnership. We live the way God wants us to because Jesus is keeping us and encouraging us to live righteously. Jesus keeps us, but little children, guard yourselves, keep yourselves from idols. You see, the Christian in sin, it's kind of like meeting someone on a trail. If you're hiking the Appalachian Trail... You might bump into other people who are hiking. And you know what? You might walk that path together side by side with sin for a mile or two. But eventually, if he's getting off the trail and you're keeping, you're not going to walk with them forever. Christians may occasionally meet sin, but they don't move in together and cohabitate in harmony. Sin is not the standard for how a Christian lives. We're just not friends with sin anymore. We may occasionally meet, but we're promised because Jesus keeps us that sin and Satan can no longer lay hold of us. And in some ways, as we start to approach Veterans Day, there's a military analogy that works. World War II was won on D-Day, but the war was not quite over yet. There were months, there were days, there, were ex- there was an extended period of time between D-Day, when the decisive battle of World War II was fought, and VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. Now, VE Day would not have happened without D-Day, but D-Day was the decisive battle that won it. In the same way for us, Jesus, in the cross, provided D-Day for the Christian. Sin was defeated. It is a done war, but there are battles still to fight until we spend time with God face-to-face in eternity. But John says one of the ways we can know that we have eternal life is by answered prayer and by victory over sin. And then finally, John says that we can know that we have eternal life by embracing truth. And this truth is twofold in verses um, 19 and 20. First, in verse 19, he says one of the things that we know is that we know we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In verse 20, he tells us the second thing that we know. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is in true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. 
Uh, the two marks here of things that we embrace when it comes to truth is we know that we're in God's family. And friends, that's not uh, a brag. That's not a bragging right. It's an objective fact. We are, <clears throat> there, there, there is a very clear dividing line. Jesus says, John says here, that you are either for God, verse 19, we are of God, and if you're not of God, what are you? He continues that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He doesn't say there's any middle ground. We're either in God's family or we're in a family that exists under the power of the evil one. There's no middle ground. So we're simply stating the fact that because of what we believe, we can know that we are in God's family. It's, we're either, it's either us or it's the world. It's either God or it's the evil one. No middle ground in the world is content to lie its head in the lap of Satan, content under his control and influence. They don't even know that there's anything wrong. But we do. We're not citizens of this world. How do we know that we're in God's family? How do we know that we are of God? Because of what it says in verse 20. Because we know that the Son of God has come. And he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. He says, this is the true God in eternal life. When he talks in verse 21 about guarding ourselves from idols... He doesn't have this idea of little statues that you might keep on your mantle. He doesn't have this idea of little gods. What he's doing is an idol is what? A false god. An untrue god. Anything that you decide to worship, whether it's your fame, your reputation, your bank account, anything can be an idol. And what he's saying is that when Jesus came, he gave us the ability to know the God who is true in contrast with every other God that is false. We have the opportunity to know the true God. Here's what I love about the way that he talks about all of us. John says that we may know that we have eternal life. And all throughout his book, like a tapestry, he has alternated these three colors of believing right, living right, and loving right. These have been John's Uh, what I would call his three tests of eternal life. And as John concludes his book, (laughs) it's a different note, but it's the same song. Answered prayer, victory over sin, embracing truth. Well, answered prayer is what did we see in verse 16? Interceding for a brother. What are we doing when we're interceding and praying spiritually for a brother who is falling into sin? We're demonstrating what? Love. Fellowship. Now John's worded it a different way. He said, one of the ways we know is through answered prayer. And it's not selfish prayers. It's prayers interceding for someone else. He's going back to this test of eternal life. He's saying, guys, listen. It looks different and takes different forms. But we genuinely have to love the family of God. Indispensable. He says Christians know eternal life when they have victory over sin. What is this? This is the moral test that we live rightly before God. We experience victory over sin. In his third test, he talks about believing the truth about who God is, about who Jesus is. We see this clearly. And so John continues to the very end his thesis that we can know, brothers and sisters, whether we have eternal life. And it comes down to how we love God's children, other believers, how serious we are about living righteously under his spirit 
under his rulership in how we believe the truth. And that's really our invitation this morning. Every single one of us probably struggles in one of those areas more than another. Man, we might have our doctrine down. We might be orthodox. But we're a jerk. We don't love. Sometimes that's the hardest thing for the really smart people who who like doctrine. The practical stuff like loving each other, that's really hard for them because they're kind of cerebral. They like facts. They don't like people. They don't like feelings. Man, if you're someone who's got your doctrine down, listen, don't check that off the list and don't worry about that. But maybe that's not God's message to you this morning. Maybe the message for you is you need to find more practical ways to put the truths that you believe into action through loving your brothers and sisters. Maybe you go to church and you don't really know what you believe. Ah, You know, what's everyone else believe? I'll go with that. That sounds great. Man, there's no, there, there's no benefit to making what you believe an issue of group consensus. There has to be some conviction there. Or perhaps, for most of you, like for most of the world, living righteously is where the battle really is. You still continue to lose your temper. Listen, a child of God in anger should be incompatible. It's a battle that we have to fight. It is a battle. But God gives us his spirit, he gives us his word, he gives us fellowship to encourage and to sustain us through this. And so my challenge for you is twofold this morning. One is very personal, and one is very corporate. We're done with 1 John. And the question is, what have you learned? What's the issue for you that you need to put into practice? What's your homework from 1 John? And the second thing is this. Every church, when they're done with a series on a a book of the Bible like 1 John, needs to take 1 John on the left hand, and they need to take their current church practice on the right hand. And they need to go, hmm, does 1 John mean anything for our church? Or are we putting the period at the end of the sentence right now, going, all right, hey, that's great, we're done with 1 John. Are there things that 1 John tells us that need to be made more vitally explicit in our church? When it talks about loving the brethren, are there ways that the fellowship of our church could be improved? Now listen, I'm, I'm not the uh, sharpest knife in the, in the block. I, we've got good staff. They're smart people. They've got lots of experience. Friends, you guys have some good ideas about ways we can improve the quality of fellowship at our church. Let's hear them. Write them down. Send an email. Talk about ways that you see our fellowship perhaps not functioning at its maximum efficiency. We'll put them into practice because it doesn't do any good for us to listen to God's word and walk away and not do anything about it. The Bible says someone who names the name of Christ should live righteously. Accountability is one of the most difficult things in the world. How do we as a church practically hold one another accountable for living out what we say we believe. Instead of praying like John talked about this morning for a brother in sin, the temptation in most churches is to gossip about him. The only person we don't talk to about a brother in sin is God. We talk to everyone else on the role of the church whenever someone's struggling. We don't talk to God about that. What can we do as a church to practically increase 
the accountability that the Bible says very clearly we're supposed, that's one of the ways that we show love, is by keeping people accountable to living righteously. When it comes to having a vital and vibrant understanding of the truth, are there ways in our educational ministries at this this church that we can improve that? So the challenge, the feedback that I ask from you over the, the, the next week, the next few days, is to hear back a little feedback from you over what you feel like God has been teaching you personally through 1 John and how you feel like we can take the message of 1 John and use it to continue to purify our church for the glory of God and for the good of our brothers and sisters. Will you do that for me? You don't need to write a book. You can write a bullet point. But we need to hear how God is speaking through his word to our family. And we're not perfect. We never will be until Jesus comes back. There are ways we have to examine our lives and our practices according to the word of God and make changes that are appropriate. And so this morning, as we have our invitation, perhaps one of these issues, truth, righteousness, love, is an area where you need to come forward this morning and say, you know what? I'm just not, I'm not getting it done. I'm, I'm not getting it done. This is an opportunity for you to be loved on by a faith family that will encourage you and say, come on, let's, let's figure out how we practice these things more effectively. If you need to come and you need to give your life to Christ, then you need to make it public so that you are accountable. This is your chance. If you need to express your love to the church by saying, I'm not going to be a perpetual visitor, I'm going to be a part of the family, I'm going to join. There are some of you here that need to do that. That's an issue that God's Spirit has to impress upon you. As we enter into our time of invitation, I invite you to come. Pray with me, please. Lord, thank you for your word. And I, I, I pray specifically that as individuals and as a community, that we have the boldness to follow your word faithfully. That as we look in the mirror and we see things that do not line up with your word, that you will help us to use the word of the word of God as a sword to cut out of our lives those things that you know are harmful for us. Lord, I I pray for our church that you will continue to deepen our love for the word and that that that, um, deepening love will explicitly be expressed through how we change according to your word. So Lord, I don't know the hearts and conditions and circumstances of all uh, the friends that are gathered in this room today, but you do. And I pray that as we enter into this time of invitation that you will encourage those to come forward this morning that need to come forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.